All right. Good morning, church. Hey, I'm excited to get to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, And I am super proud of my bride because not only has she wrestled with over the last few weeks uh, walking through and and having to, to tackle this issue, Uh, she's had to work through and wrestle tackling this issue while preparing to go to work with her husband on a Sunday. And so like, that's a whole new thing. Like go to work with your spouse day is a new deal. Uh, But also like she woke up this morning, she got four kids ready. She was at church on time and she is looking fine, like frog hair. And so baby, I just want you to know, I'm I'm excited and I'm proud of you this morning. Uh, Thanks. You. <laughs> uh, and also all the times that I'm going to get to make her blush and it's going to be, it's going to be great. Listen, I want you to know what this morning is not going to be about. Because as we dive in, there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of thought that jump in and go, where are they going to go with this? What things are they going to say? And it's like you're going to, you can, there can be the temptation to sit on the edge of your seat and wait for that one phrase to be said to wait for that one button to be pushed. So can I just clear the air as we begin this morning? Here's what today is not about. Today is not about bending the church's agenda to a social media trend. That we're not having this conversation because it's trending worldwide. We're having this conversation because the God of creation was interested and values human life long before you and I ever thought to post about it. This morning is not about bashing police officers. And I'm going to tell you, I will stand and I will tell you right now that we need incredible, godly men and women. We need to support our police officers. We need to pray for them daily because it is harder today to be a police officer maybe than ever before. That people might not give them the benefit of the best, but the benefit of the worst. And so today is not about bashing the cops. In fact, today is a call to say that we're going to pray for even more than before the incredible men and women that serve our communities. Today is not about a political agenda, that we're not talking about this because we, we're trying to go. If you want to go political, if you want to worship at the altar of a three-letter news network, that's between you and Jesus. That's not my job. Just when you do, don't do it in the name of Jesus because this is not a political issue for God. But this, the political agendas, they're going to shift and change based on what is appropriate, what is going to help them win victory. God has never once changed his mind about the value of human life. That the scriptures are completely clear from the very beginning that racism, that prejudice and hate is against the will of God, that it is sin. It's not a sociology issue. It is a theology issue. That James chapter 2 and verse 9 is clear. If you treat people according to their outward appearance, you are guilty of sin. James chapter 3 and verse 13, true wisdom is free from prejudice and hypocrisy. John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in darkness. Friends, we're talking about this today for one reason. Because racism is sin. And if it's sin, then it's the issue of God. And if it's the issue of God, it's the issue of the church. And if it's the issue of the church, it's the issue of you and me. And so I want you to know why we're talking about this morning. I hate to start at 13, but like I got a couple levels more. I got a couple clicks more. I can go because it matters that much. This is a sin issue. And that's why we're going to talk about it. All right. (laughs) 
So I agree that it is a sin issue, and it sounds like you guys agree that it's a sin issue. Um, but personally, I was naive to think that it wasn't my sin issue, that it's not mine, that I, I took the right classes. I said that I'm a generally a nice person. I love all people, and I'm nice to them. I've never joined the KKK or said the N-word. Um, you know, I married a black guy. So I, I thought I was good. I thought I had all my bases covered, um, but I was naive, and I repent for that. Uh, I have here's an example to help explain that a little better, because I like to think in pictures, and maybe you like to think in pictures and analogies. But so in college, I lifeguarded a few summers, and if you've ever been a lifeguard, you know that you. Uh, have like weeks of training and certification. So you get your CPR certification, you swim all the laps, do the dive test, on and on. Um, I did that, got my certification. Um, what would happen if I stopped there? Had the certification, rolled up to work on Monday morning, got there, had my new Speedo swimsuit. My top fine. Of, yeah, it's a one piece. Still one fine. Piece. Still fine. <laughs> And had my top-of-the-line whistle, was ready to go, hanging out in the locker room with all my fellow lifeguards, just chatting it up, getting excited, even posted a picture of myself, like a selfie on Facebook, like, I'm the best lifeguard in the world. Look at me, right? And then I just continue to have those conversations, and we, we go out, we look at the pool, we see all the kids in the pool, and then we are wondering, gosh, like, there's that one boy that's in the, the deep end over there. He, he, he doesn't even know how to swim. Why is he even in the deep end? And then my fellow lifeguards and I, we just argue of whether or not he's really swimming. Or maybe, oh, is he drowning? I'm not sure. I, maybe he is. Oh, he's flapping his arms, but I think he's just pretending. And we just argue back and forth and go about our business, right? But what good would that would do? Not much. Not for that boy. <laughs> it wouldn't. It would, it would do no good for us to just sit there and argue and debate on whether or not the boy was drowning or whether or not we were lifeguards or not. So to be a lifeguard that was faithful to my responsibility um, of being a lifeguard, I would have to actually get out on the stand sit there and look, survey the pool, make sure that everyone was safe, make sure that the boy that was drowning, that I would go dive in the pool, get in, make sure I did the necessary protocol to save his life, whether or not he was actually drowning or not, and we'd save his life. And we'd do the thing that needed to be done to actually be a lifeguard. Um, I didn't truly become a lifeguard until I took all of my right thoughts and all of my right trainings and my certifications and then I actually got in the pool. I actually dived in the water to save the life. I had to take action. So much in the same way my affirmation that racism is sin doesn't become true <laughs> for me until I actually take action. I love you. I love you. Okay. Because I, 
think that we can agree that racism didn't end with the civil rights movement. It's still happening. Unfortunately, it's still happening. And it's not a checkbox issue. So it's not a one and done, I've, I've, I've done the work, I'm not racist today. No, it's a continual, daily, weekly, hourly thing. Um, that on and on. I can't just save one kid in the pool. I've got to save every single one of them that dives in the pool. Um, stop doing that. <laughs> so I've got to be on the stand with my head on a swivel because when it pops up again and again, um, it pops up. It's against God and it's against what he has for our kingdom. We've, I've got to get in the water and we've all got to get in the water, right? right? And so that's why we're having this conversation today, because we want to be a people who are willing to take our right thinking and turn it into right action. That we would get on the stand and we would look to see when kids are drowning. Let's hope that nobody's drowning. But when we see it, we're not just going to debate about it. We're going to get in the water and we're going to go and do something. And so what I want to ask us today is to, to make four commitments. It's the four commitments that we can make to fight racism daily. Now, th these aren't going to be comprehensive. There are going to be more commitments that you can make, but we've got to start somewhere, right? There can be so much to think that it, uh, it paralyzes us to not move forward. These are four commitments that we can make, and I hope that you'll write these down, that you'll take notes, take a picture of the screen as we go on, because you're going to need to come back to these because they are daily commitments. So number one, the first commitment that we can make if we want to fight racism daily is to prepare, is to prepare. That before we can deal with racism in the world, we've got to deal with racism in me. Before you can fight racism in the world, you've got to deal with racism in you. Before I can fight racism in the world, I have to deal with it in me. To make my point, because I, I know that we don't think about racism and it being in me, but we also think that, you know, I know pretty, I know how to spell and I know pretty good grammar. But what do we do when we have an important email? You're sending an email to your boss, right? What do you do when you had that final exam paper? What did you do? You got an editor. You had somebody come in for something as simple as an email. You put an extra set of eyes on this. Hey, could you look at this? See if I missed anything if I, if I missed it before I send this. Why? Because you know it's important. Because you know that your mind will fill in the gap with what you intended, not what you actually wrote. That you know that your mind will gloss over the two and you put two instead of two, but not that two, but you put this two and not the, you see, we'll fill in the gaps. And so we have to have someone put a set of eyes and edit our own papers. If we have somebody edit an email, how much more do we need God to come in and edit our hearts on racism? Because racism is most dangerous when we think we've already edited it out of our lives. That we, it's most dangerous when we think we're already good, that it's not an issue for me. Right, and I thought I was already good, and that's when it gets dangerous. Um, because in 2020, racism isn't joining the KKK. Racism isn't saying the N-word left and right. It might be for some people, but I think for this community, it's not. Um, it's actually in the hidden, it's in the implicit, it's in the, the things that we've been conditioned to think from, that have been handed down for, uh, to us from generation to generation to generation. So, I mean, it's, here's an example of um, the books that my children read. 
my children aren't all one color. And I realized that a lot of the books that I love, that I read growing up, picture books, they only depict one color race. They don't depict different color races. So that's just one example of how we have just been conditioned to think and look one way. Um, so we can't just ask ourselves and edit ourselves. Like you said, we've got to get an editor. And I think it's really important that we ask the Holy Spirit and we ask God to be that editor. Um, in Psalms 139 and 23, 24, it says, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there is any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious everlasting ways, the path that brings me back to you. You see, when we invite God in to examine our hearts and we say, God, I'm an open book. Wherever you want to look, whatever you want, it's, it's yours. All of a sudden, questions like, do I prejudge people? Like, do I fill in the blanks of their life story with what I think is true about them based on what I see, based on the outward appearance? God, am I more angry about the inconveniences of quarantine than I was about the death of innocent people across the country? Like, do I, God, do I overlook the wrongdoing in people like me? And I overlook for the wrong in people who are different than me? Do I fight passionately for the life of the unborn, but I am passive about the life of a black man? Or what about this question? If God showed up at your doorstep tonight, you're getting ready for dinner, you hear a knock on the door, and there, there's God right there in the flesh at your doorstep. And you're like, wow, this is, this is a surprise, God. I, I didn't see you coming. And he comes in, he says, hey, listen, I, I got to be honest with you uh, because I'm God. Uh, the, look, the, the angels uh, down in, in PR, uh, HR, they made a mistake. Uh, there was a mix-up in the paperwork, and uh, we just realized that you are actually supposed to be born black. And so tonight, at, starting at midnight, you're going to go from being white to being black. Would you be okay with that? Or, or what about this? I, I know that's far out. So what about this? If your daughter came home from college and said, dad, I'm going to marry a black man. What would your first thought be? Would you say, well, what's his name? What, what does he look like? How does he talk? What's he interested in? What's his family? Would it, would it be the same questions that you would ask about someone else? If they got married and had kids, it's a 50-50 chance that they're going to present white, that they're going to present dark. Would you hope and pray that they present white? Why? Would you be okay? You see, when we invite God to examine us, questions like, are you satisfied with your response to the killing of people across the country? When you look at your response, are you satisfied with that? I mean, would your response change if you had known Ahmad, would your response be different if you knew George? I wonder, would your response be different? Would you be satisfied if that had happened to my son? What if it would have happened to yours? And you see, if there's just a moment of, I mean, I, I, I think if you could be honest enough to say that that's present in you, 
Or if you could be honest enough to recognize that that might be present in someone else, what you're acknowledging is that there's a difference in the way one group of people are treated from another. And that if we can acknowledge that, then what you can acknowledge is that we still have a ways to go. And that that preparation can't just be what they do, it has to be what we do. If we want to be who God has created us to be, we've got to prepare. Yeah, Langston Hughes says, America is not yet what she can be. I love that quote. It's just so, so powerful. Um, but I also believe the church is not yet who she can be. Amen. We are not yet who we can be. I am not yet who I can be. Um, to become who we can be, we have to live for more than me. More than me, myself, and I. I have to think about more than my experiences, about more than just my perspective. I've never, if you've never experienced racism firsthand, you don't stop to understand what it feels like. Um, then you def your default will just always be and to assume that people experience things just the way that you do, right? Um, if you've never actually been drowning in a pool, you don't know how out of control that feels. You don't know how crazy that feels. You don't know what it feels like. Um, because if you're just sitting on the side watching it happen, it's a totally different experience. Right. And so that's the problem with the phrase like, well, I don't see color. Right? In, in fact, I think many have thought, hey, I'm just going to say I don't see color, and that's going to put me on the right side. But when you don't see color, well, you don't see me. When, when you don't see color in someone, you don't see the divine uniqueness that God has placed in their life. You see, when you don't see color, then what has to happen is you look at me and you go, well, he's not black enough to be black. He's not white enough to be white. You know, I'm going to make him like me. You mute the divine in me to turn up the volume on the divine in you. You assume that I experience everything the way that you do and I don't. That you assume that black people or Mexicans or Asians or Indians or any other group of people who are different than you experience the world the way that you do, and they don't, right? Like for, for, for many, for many, like Teresa, if she were to get pulled over by the cops, like her thought is, how do I get a warning and not a ticket? It's true. It's true. That's, that's my thought too, for I need her to get the warning and not the ticket, Right? Because she's never been pulled over for driving while black. Now, hear me, this is not a knock on police, but this is to say that there is an experience that a group of people have. And, and again, I love our law. If I see a law enforcement officer at Starbucks and I'm there with Harrison, I'm gonna introduce Harrison to him. I have a high view of cops. But I also think three to four times a week, what do I do if I get pulled over? Where do I put my hands? My hands need to be gripped on the steering wheel so he knows they're not coming off, or are they open? Do I need to tell him that I have a weapon in the vehicle or, or not? Do, does that jump to conclusions? Do I, do I by trying to be overprepared, do I communicate that I think that he's racist, even though he's not, and I don't? I have this debate back and forth. And you see, that's an experience that if you've never had, then you can't quite understand. You say things like, well, why don't you just do what you're told and it won't be a big deal? Or you think, well, you're just buying the, the narrative of the media. That you shouldn't think that way. You're just buying a narrative. Well, let me ask you, would your answer be, would your response be the same if I told you that I also am working towards a concealed handgun license, 
that I go to the firing range once a week and intentionally with, with practice and shoot 100 rounds a week so that I can exercise my Second Amendment right, then am I, am I just buying the media, uh, a media narrative or am I just being intentional and prepared? You see, if you can see that there might be a different response, then it brings you to a place to go, you know what, maybe I need to stop and ask why. That when I don't understand, when I begin to question, maybe I need to ask why, to seek to understand so that it changes how I see things. Here's a great reminder. It's a practical tool. Ask why until you know why. Right? Sometimes we can try to see through everything until everything becomes invisible. There comes a point that we have to stop asking and start moving. But ask why until you know why. Why are you angry? Why are you protesting? Why do you think that way? Why are you preparing in that way? Why are you letting the historical narrative impact your personal? Or the national narrative impact your communal narrative? You see, when we stop to ask why, we live out James 1.19. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So this is all a daily commitment that we make when we prepare. Right? So that's the first commitment. We're going to prepare. Number two, and this one will be a little bit quicker, we're going to commit to protect. That I will stand up for those who cannot stand for themselves. That if someone is being hurt or mistreated or abused or spoken down to or treated in a way that devalues the divine in them, we're going to stand up and protect them. And if we don't, it can only be because we don't value them. You see, we don't protect what we don't value. We don't, we don't protect what we don't think is valuable. If it's replaceable, if it's not worth the effort, if it's too much extra, we don't care what happens to it. That we can only ignore people being mistreated and abused and devalued if we don't value them. Statements like, you know, it's terrible that he was killed, but these, this rioting has to stop. You see, that's valuing the wrong thing. That's valuing the stuff that's being broken. And stuff shouldn't be broken. But what we ought to say if we valued people is it's terrible, there's rioting, but the killing of people has to stop. You see, when we value people, we protect it. The writers of the Constitution claimed that all men were created equal, but they didn't value black men. And so they said that they didn't count in the word all. Understand this. The Bible is very clear that God, if we value God, we will value people. It's, it's crystal clear. If we value the way that God has called us to live, we will value people. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Do you remember what was happening that caused Jesus to tell this teaching story? The religious leaders, they came up and they were trying to, to test Jesus with a question. It's in Luke chapter 10. And they come up to him and they ask, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? And he says, what does the law say? And they respond with what? The Shema. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, go and do that. Go and value people. If you love me, you value me, go love and value people. Do this and you will live. But the religious leaders looking for a loophole looking for a way out, said, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells the story. He says, there was once a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And on the way, he was attacked by robbers. He was left there beaten, robbed, and left for dead. But luckily for him, what happens? A priest comes along. Don't tell me Jesus is not afraid to get a little, uh. Luckily, a priest comes along. But what does the priest do? He angles across the road and walks by. And then a, a Levite, a worship leader, skinny jeans and all, shows up. <laughs> and what does my man do? He angles over to the other side and walks right by. But then it was a Samaritan, the Jewish people's racial enemies. Don't miss the undertones. It was a Samaritan who shows up. And what happens? Does his, heart, does his mind begin to question, does he deserve it? Is he, he pro, I mean, maybe he did something that deserved to get whipped. Like he got froggy, tried to leap, and he, he deserved it. Does his mind start questioning, debating? No, what happens? The scriptures say that his heart went out for him. When you see somebody being mistreated or devalued, what goes first? Your mind or your heart? For this man, it was his heart. And because of his heart, it drove him to give him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. But he didn't stop there. He went on, he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, made him comfortable. And then he kept going. He said in the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take good care of them. And if it costs any more, put it on my bill. And on the way back, I will pay you. So Jesus asked, which do you think? Who became a good neighbor? And they said, the one who treated him kindly, the one who valued life. And he said, go and do the same. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you look for a way out or a way in when it comes to valuing people? I mean, when, when it comes to racism, do you look for a way out to just avoid the conversation, wash your hands and be done? Or do you look for a way in? Say, the gospel compels me to take action. You see, when we stand up and we prepare, when we commit to protect, when we make these commitments, when we opt in to wrestle with the truth, we are fighting racism. We are opting in to protect. We have a gospel obligation. We have a gospel obligation to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And that if we claim that racism is just a sin issue and use gospel as an excuse, it will become our indictment. You see, the gospel moves us forward. Here's what Proverbs 24 says. Don't miss this. It says, don't hesitate to step in and help. If you say, hey, that, that's none of my business. Well, that gets you off the hook. Someone is watching closely. And someone who is not impressed with weak excuses. Friends, God's not going to be impressed with your weak excuses to look for a way out. God's calling us, let's look for a way in. But can I tell you this? God's not the only one watching. The world is watching how the church responds to this. And can I tell you, there's a lot in my generation that think that the church has passed the buck, that we have outsourced fighting for the life of people of color to to, to folks who actively and intentionally advocate for atheism. But if you would say it's the extreme left that wants nothing to do with God, they're at the forefront of the fight. And where's the church? They're watching. And they're going to make judgments about God based on how we respond. 
We can't outsource this fight. It is our inheritance to stand up. Nobody believes in the value of human life more than the church. We can't outsource it. But hear this. Brennan Manning, many years ago, said something that's just as true then as it is now. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and they walk out the door and they deny him by their lifestyle. It's what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. We can't outsource the fight anymore. We've got to lead the way. And it's going to cost us to protect people, but it's going to be worth it. Proverbs 16, 8 says, it's better to be right and poor than wrong and rich. It's going to cost us, but it's worth the fight. The third commitment, so we got we to gotta prepare, we got to protect, and we got to protest. And protest, I use that word intentionally. It's supposed to stir up some emotion in you. I want it to maybe make you have a polarized opinion. Because protest, protesting, we come from a long line of table flippers. It's our inheritance to protest things that are wrong. We got to speak up. We got to speak boldly. And we got to take action. Listen, I'm going to say this. I'm going to let mama get back on this. But when we speak up, we got to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. And it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. I don't care if they're on your team. I don't care if you voted for them, if they look like you. If it's right, you call it right. If it's wrong, you call it wrong. As a culture, we've gotten really good at calling out wrong in others and overlooking the wrong in us. Can you imagine if the world today had a Nathan? Remember the prophet Nathan? 2 Samuel chapter 12. Best friends with the king. His success is the king. The king's success is his success. Right-hand man, best friend. What does David go off and do? Act a fool. His eyes get jump in a place he's not supposed to be. Acts a fool. Commits adultery. Gets a girl pregnant. And then instead of owning up, what does he do? Kills her husband, his general in war. Man messes up big time. And Nathan comes. And he calls right rights and wrong wrong. He goes to David and he tells him a story about what a man had done. It's the exact things that King David had done. And what does King David say? He says, surely as I live, that man will be put to death. And what does Nathan say in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 7? He says, you are that man. We've forgotten what integrity looks like. We've gotten allergic to it. Friends, the export of the church can't be partisanship. It's got to be integrity. But if we're going to have that, we're going to speak up in that, we got to speak boldly. Tell them, tell them, girl. I need a moment. I, I went to 17 for a minute. I got to come back down. You tell them, you tell them about it. Yeah, that was, we didn't practice all of that. Yeah, man. You, just, you just go home. Yes, and I, I mean, we do. We have to speak boldly, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would fill this church, would fill us, would fill this community. It would start with us that we would speak in boldness. In Acts 24, unrestrained boldness. Um, that is just the, the declaration that has been, that God has been revealing to me this whole week is just unrestrained boldness. And the word in the Greek uh, is 
Parisia. Sure. Anybody knows Greek? You can. Okay. It often refers to speech that is not tailored to make everyone happy, but to speak the truth, in spite of what it may cost. It is the courage to speak truth into the ears of others. Um, Y'all, that is big. That is big. That is big for me. That I am. I don't like confrontation. I don't like to ruffle people's feathers. I don't like to make anyone angry. Um, I like to keep people happy. But God has called us to his gospel. He has called us to take action. He has called us to speak boldly. Um, and he's because of him, because what he's done in us. That's why we speak boldly, because he cares about the deity and everyone not just ourselves. It's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 3.12. And it's so then with this amazing hope living in us, we step out in freedom and boldness to speak the truth. Speak the truth. That's right. We speak boldly. We speak up because what God has done in us. But we don't stop at speaking, right? If we stop at speaking, we become a social media activist and nobody likes that person, right? Nobody likes the social media. That can be a spark, but the fire that's got to come is the action. Micah 6, 8 asks, what does the Lord require of you? And friends, that's the question I have for you. What is God asking you to do? Your protest is going to be different than mine. Where you speak up, where you speak boldly, the truth is going to be different than mine. Don't get caught up in the lane of protest. Get caught up in the result. And the result of protest is peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And we protest because there are places where heaven is not living on earth. There are places where earth is not like heaven. And so we're going to stand up and we're going to protest and fight for justice. And so my question to you, when you make the commitment each day to protest is to ask, God, what do you require of me? It's what John has encouraged us to pray. God, I just want to be a part of what you are doing. God, I want to take actions. How can I be generous with the best of me for the best of you? Whoever you are. You see, that's the action of protest. We become hope dealers when we do that. In a world full of dope dealers, we become hope dealers. That's what we need. And that's the third commitment to protest. So we have prepare, protect, protest, and number four, is that we will press on. That we will fight until the fight is won. Friends, I want you to understand, 244 years ago, I wasn't considered a man. Black people weren't considered men. 159 years ago, civil war, rebellion broke out in America because half of the country thought they should own somebody like me as property. 55 years ago, I couldn't drink out of the same water fountain as you. 53 years ago, our marriage, our family was illegal in places of the United States of America. 35 years ago, I'm not preaching in this church. I'm asked to go to the church down the street. Five months ago, somebody that looks a lot like me was killed for jogging in the wrong part of town. Three weeks ago, George Floyd died. We've come a long way. We have a long way to go. 
We have to keep fighting because 53 years from now, somebody's going to stand on a stage. Somebody's going to be living and they're going to ask the question, what did they do then? Because our finish line is going to be our kids' start line. And when we get too tired, we just decide, I don't want to keep going and we give up. We shorten the field. We bring the starting line back and it may not affect you may not affect me, but it's going to affect them, and it affects the gospel. And it would. It would be a whole lot easier to just pretend like this issue doesn't exist, to pretend like it doesn't affect your day-to-day or it doesn't affect my day-to-day, so I can just forget about it and wait another four years until it's trending again, and maybe we'll talk about it again then. Um, It would be easier to just claim political incorrectness and that it's just inconvenient and it surrounds yourself with people that just look like you, that talk like you, and they never have to sit, we just never have to consider it again. I mean, it would make my social media feed a lot more enjoyable, right? No. <laughs> It'd be easy to wash your hands of this. But understand that people of color, we can't wash this off. We can't just put this in the closet and look the other way. This is who God has created me to be. This is who God has created us to be. So we can't. We don't have the luxury of looking the other way. We don't. And that's, yeah. Like as as a church. We can't because you can't. We can't because they can't. We can't because we can't just wash it off. And as a church, we don't have, we don't have the luxury to say and put up the sign that there's no lifeguard on duty. Swim at your own risk. We don't have that luxury because God has called us to so much more as believers and as the church. So I'm encouraging you guys to, along with me, along with us, along with this country, to do the work, to dig deep, to dig below the surface, to search yourself, to ask God to search yourself, and to get messy because it is messy. I'm going to tell you that it's really, really messy. I've never lost as much sleep as I have over a social justice issue in my life than I have the last few months. Um, It's messy and it's hard, but it's important. And why? Because 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For it's Christ's love that fuels our passion and motivates us because we are absolutely convinced that he has given his life for all of us. He gave his life for all of us. This means that all died with him so that those who live should no longer live self-absorbed. But lives that are poured out from him, for him. The one who died for us and now lives again. That's why. You see, the gospel calls us forward. Friends, we're not gonna end this in one day. But every single day we can make commitments. We can prepare. We can protect We can protest. We can press on. And if we will do that, we're going to move the starting line forward. We're going to bring heaven to earth. We're going to bring hope. And that's what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. Daddy, thank you so much for the men and women, for my brothers and sisters in this place. God, thank you that their hearts are for you. Thank you that with open hands they come to this place and say, God, would you search me? 
would you know me? And if there is any way that is offensive in me, God, rip it out. God, don't, don't be delicate. Don't bring the exacto knife. God, bring the sledgehammer. Bring the, bring the heavy equipment and take it out because we want to be a light in this dark world. That we don't want anything to, 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 to hinder or damper the light of the gospel. God, I thank you for humility, for the humility present. And God, we pray for even more that we would be humble enough to know that though we have come so far, we still have far to go. God, I pray that we as a community here at Riverside, that we would be the change, that we would be the hope, that people would look to this place and go, those people aren't like everyone else. They're different. They love more generously than anyone else loves. They're more humble than anyone I've ever met. They're more encouraging. They don't do the token things. It's just a part of who they are. They have conversations with people. They pray for people. They lay hands on people. They serve people. They're willing to deal in integrity. They're nuanced. Who's nuanced in 2020? The people at Riverside. God, would those things be true of us? So that each day, not by our own strength, not by our own power, not by the, not by the pull ourselves up by the bootstrapness of our own faith, but by the faith that has been given, by the boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit, by the power of the boldness of the gospel, that we would bring change wherever we go to whomever we see. God, I pray for the young boys and girls that are in this room. God, I pray that these young men and women would grow up and they would know the fullness of their identity in Christ. That they would know that there is a divine fingerprint on them and that they couldn't help but proclaim that goodness, that love to every one of their friends. That they would be the generation that racism ends with, not because somebody got elected, but because the elect stood up and started fighting for the gospel cause, for the kingdom. God, I pray that we would follow these young people, that we would lead them well, that we would have faith like them, that we would learn. God, I pray that we wouldn't teach them the sin of racism. And God, I pray they wouldn't catch it from us either. God, you are so good. God, today in this moment, I pray for our law enforcement officers and our community. God, would your angels surround them? God, would you give them a peace? Would you give their families a peace that surpasses all understanding? Would you give them words? More than that, God, would you give them favor with every person they encounter? Would their encounters not be encounters of fear, but of all the people who, who maybe even don't even like the police would see the police officers from this community and go, you look different. Normally, I'm scared when I see cops, but when you walk up, I kind of just want to know if you'll give me a hug. God, I pray for people of color, for black people, for Mexicans, for Indians, for Asians, for every color. God, I pray if there are any that are, that are in that moment where they feel like they're suffocating, where they feel like they're oppressed, God, would you just release that from their, from, their, from their neck? God, would you remind them 
that you created them fearfully and wonderfully. That your gospel is not a gospel for white people. That your hope is for all people. God, we repent. We repent of the sin in us. We pray by your grace that we could walk forward and be a light. God, you are good. You are faithful. You are loving. Help us be good and faithful and loving like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.